This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, which is a year old tomorrow. Uh, We've been on air for a year. So if you've enjoyed listening to the radio or even on the podcast, uh, let us know what you think about the old Times Radio. Record yourself uh, a video or uh, a voice note and email it to me, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we can play it out on the radio. That would be uh, lovely. On the subject of things which are lovely, the Times has got a sale on. Uh, You can get the news, the views, the analysis, the investigation, Investigations, the exclusives, the interviews, the business, and so much more. You can get more of the Times and the Sunday Times for less. You can get 50% off a digital subscription for six months. The sale is on now, but it ends tomorrow, Tuesday, June the 29th. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box uh, to get your subscription. Right, coming up on the episode today, Sajid Javid taking his place at his desk at the Department of Health. The first thing he's had done is had the CCTV turned off. Uh, Not a great surprise. But what is waiting for him in the in-tray? And has he got what it takes to take the big decisions which are necessary? We've got a great discussion coming up. It's Steve Swinford, political editor of The Times. Salma Shah, former special advisor to Sajid Javid. And Paul Harrison, former special advisor to Jeremy Hunt when he was at the Department of Health. Plus the Kingsford and the Nuffield Trust on exactly what are the decisions that Sajid Javid needs to take. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's our columnist panel. It must be Liberace. That's Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. What exactly has been going on in uh, said office? Um, uh, Robert Buckland this morning, the Justice Secretary, saying he says he wants his office swept for cameras. Actually, uh, only I mean, it's one of his first questions he asked on Friday morning, it seems. Although, uh, looking at Matt Hancock's office, uh, photos. Um, it does appear that it's pretty obvious that there were cameras in there. I, I suppose my first question, really, uh, Libby, is should there be cameras in a minister's office? Uh, 
Well, I don't see why not, really, as long as there's no audio, you know, so that stuff can get out, as long as they can't see documents and so on. Um, I gather it's it's habitual for there not to be cameras. I don't know why that camera was left there. This is a bit of a mystery. Uh, but you'd think, you'd think a grown man would know that if a camera existed and was visible, it was a wrong place to kiss people. Uh, <laughs> go kiss somewhere else. I was talking to somebody in the village today, was sort of saying, I don't know, why, why would you kiss anyone in an office? Why don't you go into the woods or somewhere? <laughs> I mean, it's it's a view. It's a view. What do you think? Not many Rachel? woods in Whitehall. Um, I, I the, the problem with the camera is it didn't have be, it seemed to have been transparent that it was there. So I think it's okay to have cameras so long as people know they're there. What was strange about this one is it seemed to have been placed surreptitiously or secretly. That's what's very peculiar about it. Uh, so that's why ministers are now in a total panic. And they're all going around trying to find out whether they've been secretly filmed all this time. Yeah, and I, I suppose it, it seems as if um, so the Labour Party's response to all of this has sort of gone off in, in several directions. On the one hand, they're, they're calling for um, uh, investigations into, into what's going on with the camera, as if they're sort of concerned about this invasion into Matt Hancock's privacy. While on the other hand, also going after him on the... Of um, cronyism and the fact that he was uh, his, his mistress, I suppose we'll call her. Uh, he'd put on the books and what came first? Uh, did she get the job first or did she get the the kiss first? Uh, <laughs> and then there was also a whole argument about now his his private Gmail account and what's going on in the um, uh, which was in the Sunday Times yesterday. Um, and yet, there's one of these sort of weird, maybe it's just such a massive story that the opposition is is essentially irrelevant in it. But do, do you do you think that the, the Labour Party, if for them to should they be making more hay of the, out of this Libby, or should they just be keeping out of it? Uh, I think I think they should make hay out of it because I mean it's such a horrible thing. I mean, apart from being a massive personal betrayal of two spouses and six children on both sides, uh, it's a massive betrayal of all the people who kept the rules. You know, somebody put up yesterday next to the picture of his embrace a picture of the Queen sitting all alone at her husband's funeral, and the Queen alone at that funeral was a sort of symbol of all the people who have not been able to be near their dying partners or. Children children or newborn grandchildren you know it, it's pe there's been a massive obedience and the idea that this is all just kind of shrugged off uh, by somebody in power because he can i think i think that really really matters and and I, if i were labor party i would be i would be working on that that breach of rules and so on and of course all the other technical breaches i mean the personal email account is disastrous you know that should be a sacking offense anyway um it, it's really hard to see why boris johnson thought he could hang on to him i suppose he just didn't want to throw a bone to cummings and throw a bone to the press you know he didn't want to lose those battles but he should have moved faster i mean that that is disastrous. In fact, I was, I was really struck that probably the most powerful criticism of the government has not come from the opposition at all, but from Trevor Phillips, obviously our stable, our, our columnist on the Times, currently uh, presenting uh, Ridge on Sunday on Sky News. Let's take a listen. The pictures that we saw were of an encounter on May the 6th. On May the 11th, my family buried my daughter, uh, who had died not of COVID, but during the lockdown. 300 of our family and friends turned up online, but most of them were not allowed to be at the graveside, even though it was in the open air, so because of the rule of 30, because of the instruction by Mr. Hancock. Now, the next time one of you tells me what to do in my private life, explain to me 
why I shouldn't just tell you where to get off. There's Trevor Phillips on Sky News uh, yesterday, and I have to say, Brandon Lewis's response was pretty uh, feeble. Um, Rachel, in a single exchange there, Trevor Phillips basically summing up why so many people are angry. Exactly. It was heartbreaking, that exchange, wasn't it? And you could feel his anger as well as his sorrow, uh, understandably. And the problem for the government and for Boris Johnson in all of this is it is that sense, as Libby said, of the perception of one rule for them, another rule for the rest of us, or as one of the Prime Minister's closest allies, I heard, said, um, rules are for little people. And once you start behaving like that, the, the thing about Boris Johnson is people, they, they know he's a rogue, but they think he's a rogue who's on their side. But as soon as you start behaving as if you're above the rules mm. and you can behave differently to other people, then then that that starts to evaporate. And that is very fragile, that support for him. And so I think that is a very dangerous perception to grow. Uh, and in terms of the opposition, that's what they need to seize on. It's not the sort of personal um, life side of this. It's the hypocrisy and the rules are for little people impression caused by the whole thing. And that actually applies whether it's to Pretty Patel not being sacked for bullying or the business about the Gmail account or these, the sort of um, lobbying. It's the sense that rules don't apply to those in power in the same way they do to those who aren't in power. And uh, Libby, I know our colleague Daniel Finkelstein's made this point before, but all these things don't matter until they suddenly do all matter. The, the sort of, in and of itself, each individual case doesn't, you know, necessarily damage the Tories' poll ratings or whatever it might be. But you sort of reach a tipping point, and then it, you know, the the, the dam busts and other mixed metaphors. Yeah, I mean, if, if we'd known about the, the separate account before, I, th I think that would have just raised eyebrows. But I think the massive the massive breach of the COVID rules allied to the personal thing. I think it's a mistake always to say private life is private, private life doesn't matter. I think people do perceive these massive betrayals as quite important. You know, when we are told, apparently authoritatively, that his wife had no idea and thought it was a stable marriage and that then he had to go home and wake up his eight-year-old child to, to tell him, that, you know, that he, he was off. I mean, that that does matter to voters. I mean, maybe, you know, some people think it doesn't. Oh, let's be more French. But actually, it does matter. And so the whole thing starts to matter and, and you just think this is altogether a bit of a scumbag and he must go. <laughs> and the other thing as well is private life is your private business. It would, would, would work were it not for the fact the government has been, you know, interfering in our private lives for the past... 15 months. That's, Absolutely. that's the whole point. Mm. Suddenly, what we do in our private life is very much the government's business. Um, anyway, let's, talk, let's move on and talk about your column, because there's probably there's so much we can talk about, um, Matt Hancock. Uh, let's talk about your column today, Libby. Clarkson shows the pain behind the plough. You've, you've fallen in love with Jeremy Clarkson. Uh, not not quite in love. Uh, you know, there's going to be none of none, none of that uh, none of that groping that that we're so used to seeing on the videos. Um, but uh, no, I, the point is, I I love and revere experts in everything from brain surgery to ditch digging. I, I love to see people who really are on top of the job. But you very rarely get a sense of how difficult and patient it was during the long learning period and all the disappointments. You know, because people say, oh, it's my job. I've always done it. And so it's always useful to see people learning to do things and being shown up for not knowing. 
And this has taught us about the complications of farming or, or whatever in this case, you know, just as my husband's farming column did years ago in a much lesser way in the Times. And so there used to be shows like that, like in At the Deep End, where there was a big television budget and reporters could learn over months and months and months how to do things. And now all you get usually is a sort of celebrity reporter saying, oh, that looks difficult. Can I have a go? Oh, I can't do it. Oh, giggle, giggle, giggle. And so when you see Jeremy Clarkson, who is genuinely screwing things up and having wrong ideas and being quietly told by the land agent that actually there is a reason that fertilizers can't be stored with flammable goods um, or being told how to plow by a 21 year old you know who thinks he's doing it badly it's really nice it's it's nice to do it's it's nice to see and i think he's doing it very well and obviously some of it is some of it is done for effect i mean did anyone really expect him to buy an ordinary tractor no 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 it had to be a flash tractor um uh, but I, I think I, I enjoyed it. You know, as I say, I've always disliked the Clarkson persona as a sort of petrol head oaf a lot. And now I'm, I'm kind of coming round, you see. I, I'm, and, and three or four people under the line in the Times are saying, yes, I'm surprised too. I hated the man and now I quite like it. So he's, he's sort of won. I, he's I, won. I mean, make him health secretary or something. I confess <laughs> I haven't seen it. Well, I've seen clips and I heard he was on, um, I think, Charles Cohen's show a couple of weeks ago, which I heard. And his... Yeah, the way he talks about it, and I think probably he even went into it uh, with the sort of Clarkson persona, uh, you know, there's all be a lot of fun. And it turned out to be a phenomenal amount of hard work. And there was a, um, a clip I saw where he, he sort of talked about how all this work, working seven days a week, uh, loads of people, you know, working morning, noon and night on the farm to make basically no money, uh, often wiped out mm. by some bad weather or something that's not even within, within your control. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think what I was very, very pleased about was that when three of the ewes, which were unproductive and couldn't breed, had to go for cull, he drove them to the abattoir himself and was filmed there, and they filmed him in the abattoir being a bit shocked he couldn't say goodbye because they'd already gone through the process and were dead. And most programmes like that, programmes about farming, they really avoid the fact that there is an abattoir you know, and the animals are killed. And I thought, yeah, okay, good for Amazon, you know, because when long ago when the BBC came to our, our farm just as a, as a sort of, as a backdrop for something, and, the, you know, the interviewers were going, oh, the piglets aren't this sweet, do they have names? And I said, oh, no, they have no names because they're going for slaughter. No, I'm sorry, we can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. <laughs> and so I thought that was, that, that was a little bit of, a little bit of honesty on, on that Clarkson programme. And you could see that he hated having to drive the use to the abattoir. And I remember when he was, I think it was when he was talking on Giles' show, he said he tried to sell this show a few times to the BBC and they wouldn't have it. And it was only when uh, Amazon came, out, came along later. And they literally, he said they just sort of turned up each day and just filmed whatever was happening. Because uh, you can't really plan on a farm. What about you, Rachel? Have you seen the, have you seen the show I yet? haven't seen it, although I'm willing to be persuaded. I have to say I was a bit irritated by the idea of the Lamborghini tractor mentioned by Libby. But what I think was <laughs> yeah. It's very funny. <laughs> it comes across so well in uh, Libby's column is this sense of there is a kind of romanticised view of farming. It's almost kind of fairy tale farms, Disneyfication of the, of the countryside. And actually farming is a hard industry it's hard work and it involves quite a lot of brutal tough decisions including death uh, and so to explore that is really interesting um and to I, I thought that was fascinating so it's not a sort of romantic um fairy tale view of it all and of the countryside as it's just this pretty rural idyll that people can visit it's actually a working thing 
Yeah, I suppose that's the, that's the big. And actually, it's one of those things where f- maybe maybe the timing of it worked so well because farming is, uh, you know, part of the national conversation right now. Whether it's you know sausages getting into Northern Ireland or trade deals or animal welfare, it's part of it's, it's part of the political conversation in a way that I can't really remember it being for for quite a long time. And this whole idea of rewilding the- as well that the the Queen now is yeah. going to have to have you know, wolves and bears or whatever it is. That sense of, um, is that it actually, that in a way, that's a kind of rich man or rich woman's version of farming where you can have, you can turn the countryside back to the wild and everyone will, you know, live as as in ancient times. Whereas actually farming is a, is a huge um, task at curating the countryside and controlling the wilderness. It's not, you know, it's just about odds with this idea of rewilding in a way. I don't know what Libby thinks about I think, that. Uh, yeah. Well, I just think one of the interesting things about the Clarkson programme, and we've just been talking about people not obeying the rules because they think they're too grand for them, is that just about you know four or five times in every episode, Clarkson comes up against something, like the fact that his planning permission isn't complete because he's put the wrong kind of roof on his farm shop, or that his, his water's illegal you know, because it's got coliform bacteria in it so he can't sell it. Uh, or that you know every all these regulations keep coming up, and he is coming up against them and realizing he's got to obey them. And to watch Jeremy Clarkson having to obey rules is really it's it's, it's very um it's nourishing, nourishing to the spirit. <laughs> it's good for the soul. It's good for the soul. Well, it's sort of well, it's sort of related. The last thing I want to ask you about um it was garage. You know, some sort of, you know from Jeremy Clarkson and cars to garages. <laughs> you don't nobody puts their car in the garage anymore. Apparently, fifty three percent of people with garages so they never put their cars in them because it's it's too full of junk um as someone without a garage uh all right but although having whenever when i have owned a garage there was never any question of putting the car in it that would have been madness uh what about you rachel well i definitely haven't got a garage 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 i think you should as alan partridge matt for sure um <laughs> but uh i think isn't the point that junk expands to fill the space available so i have a junk drawer which is always overflowing with sort of papers any old rubbish that comes in I don't know where to put it just goes in this increasingly full junk drawer until I kind of have a fit and throw it half of it out or all of it out uh, and then I, I um, put floorboards down in the attic so I could put junk up there um, <laughs> but uh, during the lockdown our kids decided they were going to go around the house selling off junk and they hit lucky in their first attempt they flogged <laughs> off two old emma bridgewater cups for a hundred quid so then they thought they went around <laughs> and to nail down everything in the house to stop them selling it off um but there, there is just too much junk and i think we have to be more brutal and ebay is a very good idea i in fact last night because we don't although we don't have a garage we have got a shed and uh we were yes this is how we spent our sunday clearing out the shed putting some new <laughs> Taking out some of the ultimate, but and I finally yesterday let go of a lot of props from the sketch group that I was in fifteen years ago. Uh, but the, now you'll need them next week. You're bound to need them next. Yeah, week, exactly. So. If I need some homemade lollipop lady uh, lo- lollipop <laughs> signs and uh, and some sort of matted wigs, um, I'm going to regret doing that. What about you, Libby? We've just 
uh, we've downsized twice in in the last 20 years and uh, every time there's a massive amount that has to go and you're always desperate not to put it in a skip because you think oh that's terrible you know somebody might want that so you just put up in the garage and you then you try and persuade somebody to buy it at the at the white elephant store on the fate <laughs> which of course is cancelled because of covid and so it just grows and grows but of course nobody puts their car in a garage because cars these days modern cars can stand out you know they're, they're the terrific new paints and everything else and they don't rust away people with classic cars put them in garages but they are strange people anyway so um, uh, I, i'm not surprised at all 53 percent i think is nonsense i think it's absolute rubbish i think i think far more than 50 percent of garages are, are full of complete rubbish well, there we are. I'm glad to, to be absolutely clear. That's Libby's view and not mine about people who have classic cars. Um, any advice, uh, anything that's ever happened to you on your first day in a job, just before I let you go? I haven't got anything uh, yeah, I used to be a temp. Go on, Libby. Go on, Libby. When I was a... When I was a temp typist, the first job was always looking in the drawer of the person I was replacing and reading a copy of Woman, Bride and Home because they was always leaving to get married. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure that that's necessarily what Matt Hancock's uh, left for, uh, for Sachin Chaffin, but may, may, maybe, some wedding, maybe there are some wedding brochures there. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there. And don't forget, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a Times digital subscription with that special offer. Your first six months with 50% off. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what is waiting for Sajid Javid in his intro? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Health Secretary is dead. Long live the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, starting his first full day in the Department of Health this morning. He's been out visiting a hospital as well this morning um, and uh, is due to address the House of Commons later, uh, updating MPs on whether or not it's possible to ease restrictions any earlier than July the 19th. So what we're going to do is have a proper look at Sajid Javid, the man, and what's really going on in the Department of Health and his huge 
uh, intrigue that he's got to deal with. Let's start with the Times' political editor, Stephen Swinford. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Matt. Sum up briefly, first of all, just what an incredible two, three days we've been through in uh, in politics. How significant, how significant was Matt Hancock's departure? How significant is Sajid Javid's arrival? It's been extraordinary, Matt. I, I, I've never seen anything quite like it. We've had a health secretary who's had to go literally, he fell in love with someone, he decided to leave his family, and with it, it also cost him his political career because he breached lockdown rules in the process. And I've seen a lot of Westminster scandals in my time, and, and I've never seen anything like that before. Uh, so the whole thing was done and dusted within 72 hours, uh, and that was it. So we've had a complete regime change at the Department of Health with a very different philosophy in place with the new man, Sajid Javid. So let's, yeah, let's focus on him, because we've, we've, we've spoken so much over the last few days about Matt Hancock. Let's focus on the new guy. Um, I mean, Matt Hancock, literally a household name because he's been in everyone's households telling them what they can and can't do in their households for the past uh, year and a half. For people who don't know, describe Sajid Javid, his background, uh, his politics and why um, his appointment is significant beyond just filling the chair vacated by Matt Hancock. He is a proper Tory libertarian. That has always been his basis. And he's also very, very much influenced by thinking on the economy. Um, and those things throughout the lockdown, we've seen him write, repeated while he was in, on the back benches. He's made the case for easing lockdown restrictions. He's been arguing that this is the damage, the economic damage wrought by lockdown is actually as significant as some of the uh, as the public health risks of of uh, keeping the lockdown. You know, the, the public health benefits of the lockdown itself. So he is very much on that side of the debate, and that is going to come more and more into focus as we get closer to July the nineteenth. Having someone like him as health secretary is going to mean it is more likely that all of the restrictions go on July the 19th. Um, so that is where we are. And, and the, But the other thing is he's going to face a challenge because he's got the same scientific advisors, the same people talking to him. And cases, Matt, I'm sure you, you as, as we're seeing, are ticking up as our hospitalisations. So come the big decision moment, will the government really go full throttle and release all relax all the restrictions or will they be holding back and that remains to be seen and sometimes what we've seen steve in the last uh, months and year is that people who are very gung-ho about open up um uh the, the restrictions are causing more damage than they need to actually the closer they get to the top the closer they get to all the data and the advice that's coming uh particularly from the chief medical officer and so on um actually they they, they tend to end up erring more on the side of caution if there's one thing that boris johnson's learned in the past year the erring on the side of caution is no bad thing and he is the ultimate example of that he's gone from full gung-ho liberal to someone who's suddenly very, very cautious and very concerned and is no longer with those lockdown sceptic Tory MPs that want to ease restrictions as soon as possible. So it's a dramatic shift for him. So we'll just have to see how it goes for Sajid Javid. Now, at the moment, all the noises I'm hearing from government is they are confident that restrictions will be lifted. They're increasingly confident that link between the actual getting coronavirus and going to hospital and getting serious illness is being broken by the vaccines. But it's one thing to say that now. It's another thing to say that in two weeks' time when they have to make that big decision. Um, and we'll have to see where he ends up. But it does look more likely with someone like him as health secretary that they will be lifted. And uh, it was a fascinating read that you had in the paper in the Times on Saturday talking about the prospects of a reshuffle. Uh, obviously, at that point, Matt Hancock was still in post but wobbling. 
um, in a way, it was quite lucky for Boris Johnson that he had someone with huge cabinet experience, former Home Secretary, former Houses Secretary, former Culture Secretary, sitting on the back benches in part because he'd fallen out with Dominic Cummings. So it meant he didn't have to have a broader reshuffle. Uh, do you think that the idea of a broader reshuffle is now on the, on, completely on the back burner, given that one of the reasons for having one was to potentially bring somebody new in at health? So it definitely is on the back burner. So before Matt Hancock uh, went, people were telling me that the last thing Boris Johnson wants to do is to have a reshuffle. The ideal for him is to basically long grasp this for as long as possible. There are a few reasons for that. One is he doesn't enjoy the conflict. He doesn't enjoy the process of doing a reshuffle. But the bigger point is that as soon as you hold that reshuffle, all of the power that you have over people to offer them positions, to keep them in positions, it goes. And with an already very rebellious Tory party, it would have made matters much, much more difficult for him. So the thinking now is to delay. And people are talking to me about autumn, but actually some people are talking to me about next year. He's happy with his top team that he's got at the moment and he wants to stick with it. Steve Swinford, thanks very much for that. Stephen Swinford, please go to Of The Times, joining us live from the roof of Parliament, uh, where just outside the Times uh, office in Parliament. Um, uh, like I said, Sajid Javid will be appearing in the House of Commons later on. This is, though, is what he had to say uh, as he arrived for his first day yesterday, working on a Sunday, uh, at the Department of Health yesterday. We are still in a pandemic, and I want to see that come to an end as soon as possible. And that will be my most immediate priority to see that we can return to normal as soon and as quickly as possible. That was him speaking yesterday. Uh, the, lots of people focusing on the fact that he was talking about return to uh, normal as soon as possible. Was this a, a point of difference between him and Matt Hancock? Is he more uh, enthusiastic about unlocking as soon as possible? Well, one person who knows Sajid Javid better than most, his former special advisor, Salma Shah, joins me now. Hi, Salma. Hello, Matt. And uh, someone who knows the Department of Health better than most is Paul Harrison, a former special advisor there uh, when Jeremy Hunt was health secretary. Hi, Paul. Morning. Uh, nice to have you both with us. So, first of all, Salma, um, is this a, you work with uh, uh, Sajid in several different roles. Is he interested in health? Is this something that sort of gets him up in the morning? Has he got ideas? Do you know what a health service run by Sajid Javid looks like? I don't think any cabinet minister, when they go into their job, really knows what they're going to be like in the job. And I think um, a lot of them learn on the job and sort of figure out what they want to do with the job um, when they get there. I think the things that are really interesting are kind of like, what are the themes that someone like Sajid Javid always sort of goes to? in any job that they've been in. And there's always that question of sort of social mobility, equality, um, sort of understanding uh, what the masses want. And particularly for him, I think because he's got he's got quite an engineering mind and he's very sort of problems focused in like how to find solutions. I think that, that those are his sort of guiding principles. It's how do I fix some of the big issues? Um, so I think waiting lists, um, social care, that kind of stuff that everybody's talking about, that will be sort of top of his intray. He wants to fix these issues. Paul Harrison, from based on your time uh, at the Department of Health, how easy is it going to be fi to fix those issues? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult breach at the best of times. And to be honest, you know, we've seen that because of the way the pandemic has uh, has progressed and how dependent we've been on the amazing work that NHS staff have done up and down the country. There's kind of there's even more of an emotional attachment to to the NHS and to the issues that that the DH kind of directly oversees. So you know, social care has been like the big unsolved problem of politics for what 15, 20 years now. So yeah, I mean, it, it is really difficult. But 
it's like it's also totally fascinating and a brief that everyone cares about so you know it will be an enormously rewarding experience for for him i'm sure and all the people that are working with him what would you if 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 you were going into the department with giving everything you know what would be your advice to uh Satya Javid this morning paul well i mean i think realistically a, a number of the things that he's going to have to take decisions on uh, will be to at least an extent dictated by elsewhere so kind of number 10 are still taking a lot of the decisions about you know, the ultimate kind of moment of unlocking and when that happens you know when it was delayed uh, when freedom day was delayed a little while ago it was essentially the pm who made that decision so some of it will be outside his his purview but there are lots of like, immediate decisions that he'll have to take about you know there's a spending review this year so how robust are you with the treasury how much money do you think that you need what as salma says are you going to do about waiting lists because i think that is going to be the big coming problem of uh the administration when it comes to healthcare. so it's it's those kind of things that he'll need to quite quickly get a grip on the direction that he wants to set and then there's other issues. There's NHS pay. There's NHS reform. That Matt Hancock was drawing up a big uh, piece of legislation. Uh, also, who to replace uh, Sir Simon Stevens with when he steps down as the head of NHS England? Um, it, it, is Sajid Javid the sort of person who's ready to take big uh, decisions, Salma, or is he? It, 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 are we going to see a lot of things being sort of kicked into the long grass while he while he tries to work out what he thinks about things? So this is interesting because you know. So given all the jobs that Sajid's had in cabinet and all the things that he's had to experience, in, including sort of quite big crises um, in his career, I think he probably is more likely to bite the bullet on some of these big issues. But your, your question of timing is quite an interesting one, because when do you start doing that once you've read into stuff and once the pandemic is actually over? And and critically it's what stuff do you actually prioritize so i actually haven't you know looked at uh, you know healthcare reform in depth but he he will have obviously a different approach to it than the previous health secretary um so you know what he puts in in priority order i think is going to be something significant to look at as far as reform is concerned but directly to your point he's had a lot of experience in this before so i think i think he is quite a reforming type of individual the problem is that he's never had long enough in any department really to be able to to show a lot through because from the number of jobs he's had he's only ever done like a year and a year and a half in, in each of these places you weren't tempted to go back into government with him then Salma no my time is very well and truly done in government <laughs> Uh, and Paul, were you surprised? Because there was a lot, there was some speculation that your old boss Jeremy Hunt might have got the call up. Were you surprised it was Sajid? No, I mean I think very good appointment. Um, you know, I, I I don't know whether Jeremy was approached. Um, I know that he's happy doing a number of things that he can do now, given a bit more freedom on the back benches. But um, but yeah, I mean I think very good appointment. I mean it, it, it is one thing that Jeremy would say. I think you know there is a real sense of kind of responsibility with a job like that it's it's high profile in itself but in terms of the the things that you're actually responsible for and one of the ways i used to illustrate it was even in my day in the nhs budget considerably bigger than it than it was when i was working there uh just to keep going nhs hospitals and doctor surgeries to pay staff and pay for drugs they spend a billion quid every three days like that's how big the health service is in this country and it's got an even more important role right now so you know, I'm sure Sandra will be really excited about the challenge. But, you know, make no mistake, it is, it is a huge challenge. Uh, final question. 
uh, well, two questions, I suppose, for, to both of you. Uh, will we end all restrictions on July the 19th and will we see a full plan for social care by the end of the year from Sajid Javi? First of all, from you, Paul. <laughs> I, I think pretty well we will. Uh, there might be one or two exceptions uh, in terms of you know changes to the package on July the 19th. So I think first answer, yes. Second answer, probably not. Oh, wow. What about you, Salma? I think yes and yes. I actually think, and the reason I say yes on social care is because this is not a new subject for Sajid. So when he was community secretary, and Paul, you might recall this, he worked very closely with Jeremy Hunt, who at the time was health secretary, to work on the social care preset uh, that then came in on council tax bills. So this is not a new subject for him. And I think once he sort of gets the bit between his teeth on this, I think if, if there's a deadline for the end of the year, I think he'll get there. There we are. Well, we'll bring you both back at Christmas and find out. Uh, Salman Shah, former special advisor to uh, Sajid Javid, and Paul Harrison, former special advisor at the Department of Health under uh, Jeremy Hunt. Thanks very much for talking us through sort of the politics and exactly what the politicians, uh, what uh, the political uh, calculations that Sajid Javid is going to make. In just a moment, let's, let, we'll speak to um, a couple of uh, health think tanks to see what they'd like to see in terms of the nuts and bolts of policy. So we continue our deep dive into what exactly faces Sajid Javid in his intro uh, this morning. Right, let's take a look now. Um, let's speak to a couple of health think tanks who spend all their time thinking about this stuff, and I suspect uh, their work is going to form part of uh, Sajid Javid's reading uh, this morning. Let's speak to Nigel Edwards, the chief executive of the Nuffield Trust. Morning, Nigel. Good morning. Uh, we've also got Helen McKenna, a senior fellow at the King's Fund think tank. Hi, Helen. Hi, yeah. So, Nigel, if, uh, if Sajid Javid picked the phone up to you this morning and said, look, Nigel, I've got a whole load of stuff here. There's a whole pile of stuff for me to read on the desk. Let's just cut to the chase. What do I need to sort out? What would be the first thing you said? Well, I mean, the obvious thing is to uh, deal with the, the continuing problem uh, with COVID. But we're also seeing at the moment the most extraordinary spike in demand across the whole NHS, which seems to, to represent some quite significant changes in, in how people are using it, which, which then sort of bumps up against the fact that we've got a very tired uh, uh, workforce, um, some of which, of course, have, have had COVID themselves and are suffering the consequences of that. And of course, we went into the uh, pandemic with very significant vacancies across nursing, medicine, and a, a number of other key key areas. Um, uh, so, when you take all of that together, the, I think the NHS is under a level of pressure which is is very concerning. Um, he's got to deliver the hospital a, a new set of hospitals, which unfortunately it's framed like that. And as you were talking just earlier, um, he's got to uh, uh, to, impl to develop a plan for social care because it does appear that the one that Prime Minister said was ready uh, wasn't. Um, Surely not. And, 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 and there's, of course, a, a, a substantial piece of legislation uh, that is going into Parliament within a few weeks' time. So there's quite a long list, and then there's a spending review coming later in the year. So he's got quite a big to-do list here, quite a which, bit of which um, uh, is extremely demanding. Uh, some, of the, some of the basic work to do, underpinning it has not yet been either com done or at least completed, um, and some of them are very intractable, in particular the workforce problems. Helen McKenna, with the same question to you, really. What would be your uh, advice to Sajid Javid? Is it to... Uh, spend a lot of time reading into everything or just make some big just make some big decisions now because uh the one thing worse than um uh you know get, making the wrong decision is just delaying decisions you know as we've seen time and time again on things like social care but it, is there is there a sort of window of opportunity here that he could have a big bold impact but he needs to sort of get on with it 
Yeah, well, I mean, that's such an interesting question. I mean, alongside the things that Nigel's already outlined there, I mean, I guess, you know, first of all, to say that I don't envy Sajid Javid, I mean, he's got an absolutely huge in-tray, arguably the fullest and most difficult in-tray that any Secretary of State for Health and Social Care has ever had to face when starting the job. There'll be really very little time, if any, for him to catch his breath and take in kind of what's just happened over the weekend. He's going to need to hit the ground running, absolutely. And in terms of some other things, in addition to what Nigel mentioned, I think, you know, there's obviously tackling the backlog of care operations and treatment that built up during the pandemic and then there's also very importantly he's going to need to decide or certainly have a have influence over who should replace the current chief executive of NHS England Sir Simon Stevens who's actually due to step down at the end of next month and this is such a critical role that the Secretary of State is going to want to think really carefully about which of the candidates is best able to lead the service at such a challenging time but in terms of your question about you know um, whether he needs to just make big bold decisions now or you know wait and look at the detail I think it depends on the issue and also how much he kind of trusts the work that uh, the previous Secretary of State um, for Health and Social Care Matt Hancock has already done um, but for example with the legislation he might want to take some time to read that because looking at you know what happened with the Lansley reforms back in 2012 and how they passed through Parliament they, they had a very difficult time and I think it's wise for a Secretary of State to kind of review the detail of um, legislation before putting it through Parliament um, but then on things like social care I mean we've had we've had numerous commitments from both this government and previous governments um, that they're going to address social care um, I think you know we know what the options are for reforming it he just needs to put out a plan to do that I, I don't think there's any reason to really wait it's, it's one of those things Ellen, isn't it that it gets it's been delayed for so long and uh, endlessly discussed that essentially everyone knows what needs to happen with social care that it's going to cost a lot of money and to some yeah, extent it, it matters less who's going to sit who's sitting in the Department of Health and more who's sitting in the Treasury the Ironically, now we have someone sitting in the Department of Health who has previously sat in the Treasury. So does that fill you with confidence that he'll find a way to, you know, get the prize, the money out of the Treasury? Or is there a Treasury man at the Department of Health who will think that uh, there's a way of doing this on the cheap or kicking it into the long grass? That is such an interesting question. And I think, you know, we're yet to know. But I think, um, you know, on the plus side, as you say, he'd be well versed in the detail of social care as the issue of funding reform came up when he was chancellor. And also he was previously at the Department for Communities and Local Government. But then, you know, in terms of, you know, what his attitude to funding is going to be, you know, um, obviously he was chancellor at the Treasury when he kept funding, certainly for the NHS, low, even as demand for services were rising. So, you know, we, we don't quite know, uh, you know, whether he's going to be keen to keep hold of the purse strings and balance the books or whether he's going to, as a health and social care secretary of state, want to now try to improve health and well-being and address the social care funding reform issues. And obviously the jobs and motives of chancellors are very different to that for secretary of state for health. Um, Nigel, were you going to come in there? Yes, yeah, so I, I think we'll just challenge the premise of your question, uh, uh, really, which is there are two ways of framing the social care problem. But one is... Uh, we, we want to try and stop people selling their homes, which is a, quite a narrow framing. And the other is we need to fix the fact that, that a large number of people who need care are not able to get it um, and that the provider side of the social care system is pretty broken. Um, uh, now, that the, the people's exposure to catastrophic costs is obviously an, an important issue, but it, the actual social care issues are much wider than the protection of people's property and inheritance. 
Um, and actually, some, it, it, that makes it quite a. Tri- one, I think one of the reasons why this ends up being quite a quite a tricky uh, question. Um, the, the the problem with that, as with the, uh, the the very long tail of people now waiting for for um, for surgery, very 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 large numbers and growing, is that there aren't really very many easy fixes. Um, they either cost money or they need sta- uh, they, they they need they need staff. And I I think. Um, uh, that uh, he ought to just take a, a little bit of a step back and say we all know what to do on social care because actually I think there's a bit of thinking about what is really the policy objective and whether the government is in fact clear on that or at least has a consensus on it. And I suppose actually that's where you might not. In the end, it comes down to where the prime minister is on all these things and whether or not Sajid Javid and uh, Rishi Sunak can agree uh, is one thing. Is is the prime minister willing to? Uh, I mean, the big thing we keep hearing is the Prime Minister wants to spend loads of money and he doesn't seem particularly keen on finding where it comes from. I just wonder, finally, whether you both think that the the sort of public attitude, the public mood is is shifting more quickly than the Prime Minister uh, and the Chancellor realise and that actually there is support for increased taxes, particularly if it goes towards finally sorting out social care. I don't know what you think about that, Helen McKenna. Yeah, um, I think that uh, I think there is an increasing public mood around potentially support for additional funding um, for social care, potentially, although uh, and that has become more prominent during the pandemic. People have started to understand some of the issues there um, that Nigel has rightly outlined. Um, But I think as well for waiting times. So I think waiting times are always of interest to the public. Waiting times were bad even before COVID took hold, but they've got even worse during the pandemic. They're now so bad that we've had to start measuring the number of patients waiting over two years for treatment. Two years is absolutely unacceptable for anyone to have to wait for care. It means people spending months in pain. And as Nigel says, there really isn't a quick fix to this problem, but it does require additional funding and uh, more support for the workforce so that they can start um, tackling this and that they can kind of get over what's been happening during the pandemic. Um, You know, they're completely burnt out. We need more staff in the system. Um, And ministers are going to need to put more funding in for that. And I think the the public may um, be kind of amenable to that but also ministers are going to need to be honest with patients about how long it's realistically going to take to bring waiting lists back under control. Honesty and cash that's what we basically need. Um, uh, just very quickly Nigel your your view on that? I'd, I would I would agree with that uh, analysis. I mean there was a speculation earlier um, in the month that um, the, the attitude was that the public uh, there wasn't enough pain to, to justify additional money. I think that's probably short-sighted because um, it, it's quite likely that uh, this will become uh, painful quite quickly um, and, and quite politically salient. And one of the lessons from history is that you can't predict the point at which the public shift from being uh, relatively complacent uh, or at least tolerant, tolerating long waits to it becoming a really very major and, and electoral issue. It, it can only, it can sometimes just take one news story or one patient to completely flip public attitude. So if I was them, I would be uh, uh, thinking ahead to the point at which that will happen. We can't tell when, um, but it is probably a matter of uh, when not if. Nigel Edwards, Chief Executive of the Nuffield Trust, and before that, Helen McKenna, Senior Fellow at the King's Fund. Thanks so much for joining us. And while we've been speaking about Sajid Javid, he's been speaking to reporters uh, about what he plans to do as the new Health Secretary. He said how keen he was for society to return to normal and the restrictions are lifted for good 
My most important messages uh, right now is if you haven't got the jab, please go out there and get in. Uh, we're fortunate. I think we've got the best vaccination program in the world. We've got some four out of five adults that have had one jab and three out of five adults that have had uh, two jabs. And that's some 77 million jabs, I think. And there's still a few more to do. And uh, as we said, we can make sure we're absolutely sure that every single adult uh, will be offered a jab by the 19th of July, which is two weeks before uh, the original plans. I want to see the restrictions lifted and life going back to normal as quickly as possible. And that's at my, right here and now, that is my absolute priority. I want to see those restrictions lifted as soon as we can, as quickly as possible. In terms of the roadmap uh, to that, you'll have to wait for my statement to Parliament later today. Such a Jared speaking in the last few minutes. He also said, I don't think as a general rule there should be cameras in the Secretary of State's office. I've never known that in the other five departments that I've run, and I'm not really sure why there was one here. Uh, Sajid Javid speaking this morning. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.